following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I don't know what yours are, but you know, right? You know the things that tempt you, the things that pull you into sin. And the Bible calls these by lots of names, lust, passions of the flesh, evil desires. Uh, in the modern world, we rename them just addictions. <laughs> right? Addictions. It sounds so much more like just an emotional problem, not sin. <clears throat> but it's things that you're drawn to that can control your life and that are very difficult to be set free from. Uh, uh, and it's, what's interesting is... Uh, in, in the modern world, some of these uh, we see as being wrong, but some of these have actually been elevated to the place of a worthy life goal uh, to be successful, right? Uh, some things are so socially acceptable, even though the Bible speaks of them as desires of the flesh, that in our modern age, they're actually uh, how we would define success, right? So whatever the case... Uh, the important thing is to see that these desires and cravings are a powerful force in our life, right? And it's something we can't get, we can't just run away from because it's in us, right? This flesh is in, in our flesh. It's the old nature, the old person. The, 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 and many of these fleshly desires are in our flesh, in our body, right? And uh, the desires of the body in themselves are not sin, but the way we seek to fulfill those desires, apart from God's plan and purpose, is what makes them sinful or wrong. And they're an extremely powerful force. Paul says it's, they're waging war against you. Right? And, and in a war, uh, the, the goal is to destroy, to conquer, to dominate you. And if we don't win this war, that's exactly what happens. We become dominated and controlled by our flesh. These addictions rule us and control us. And we become like a slave in chains, and we live our lives in bondage to these forces. So we all know, uh, if we're honest, that resisting these forces is, is, is no small thing. It's not simple. It's not easy. Um, uh, it's, not, it's not just flipping a switch and being done with it, right? And so Peter says here, don't, don't indulge these worldly pleasures um, that, uh, that the rest of the world so freely just dives into, right? He says we need to resist them. We don't do... He says, don't be doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness. Now, this list is, is uh, Peter kind of picks the worst of the worst, right? And we may look at that list and say, sensuality, nope. Passions, nope. Drunkenness, nope. Orgies, no, never. Drunken parties, wouldn't even think of it. I'm good, right? Uh, but... Um, uh, our list might be different, but the truth is we all deal with these cravings. Right? The passions of the flesh are something we were born with because of the fallen nature. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they caved into the desires of the flesh, and we now inherited a nature that follows in their steps. Right? So we all struggle with some kind of temptations. We all struggle with some uh, sin as a result of the fall. So uh, here... Peter kind of moves into some more practical ways besides just saying, stop doing that. He gives, us, he gives us some weapons for how we can fight this battle and win and be victorious. Right? 
So how do we fight this battle and win? Well, he says in verse 1, read again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way, with the same uh, way of thinking. So he says, here's some things you can arm yourself with. And uh, the word arm is, is, a, is, is vocabulary, language that we would use as somebody, a soldier who's about to go to war or go to battle. Right? Take up arms means take up a weapon or a shield. To take up tools for warfare. This summer, uh, when we were in the U.S., we got to go to a 4th of July parade, very American thing to do. And at the end of the parade, uh, these F-16 fighter jets come sweeping up the street. Well, not, I mean, they were flying not on the street, but it felt like they were on the street. And uh, they were really close. You could, like, see the pilots waving at us. They were so close. It kind of shakes the buildings, and they are so loud. Uh, and these are, you know, weapons of destruction. But on that day, they were not weapons of destruction because they weren't armed, right? They weren't carrying bombs or missiles, right? They were just trying to th- thrill spectators, right? Uh, I think it kind of freaked out some small children and babies, but uh, no real harm done, right? They weren't armed. But if you were to go to Ukraine, where there's a real war going on, the, the planes flying overhead are armed, right? They've got bombs and weapons and missiles and guns, right? They are armed for battle. And that's the picture he's using here. He says, arm yourselves for this battle. Take up your weapons and be prepared so that you can win this war. And one of the reasons I think a lot of us uh, meet with constant defeat is that we're going into battle with nothing. It's just nothing. We have no arms. We have no weapons. Even though God has given us weapons for this battle, we forgot to arm ourselves, right? And so he says here, arm yourselves. Be prepared, right? Don't walk into this battle unprepared. Um, and, and the problem is I think a lot of us don't even know what the weapons are, much less how we pick them up, right? So today we want to look at uh, what these weapons are and how we take hold of them so that we are armed for battle, ready and prepared. And he says basically the, the main weapon is this, what we arm ourselves with is the same way of thinking that Jesus had. Right? He says, so, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Right? So what was the thinking of Jesus that uh, caused him to be victorious, that caused him to overcome? Well, it is essentially this. It is, to think like Jesus is to have the attitude and mindset that led him to the cross. Okay? The attitude and mindset that led him to the cross, that, that, that gave him, uh, he said he set his face toward Jerusalem, he set his face toward the cross, and he walked down that path all the way until they na- drove the nails into his hands, and he gave up his life on the cross. Right? So what is that thinking? What is, what is the attitude or mindset of Christ that, that led him all the way to the cross? Well, it's simply this. It is the commitment to obey God... Follow him and do his will no matter the cost. That's ultimately what we arm ourselves with, right? The commitment to obey God, to follow him, and to do his will no matter the cost. No matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter uh, the struggle involved, right? We follow God no matter what to the end, right? Is that how we think? Right? Is that our attitude about life moment by moment? 
I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to live for Him. No matter how hard it gets, I'm going to resist sin. No matter how much my flesh screams out that it wants something different, I am going to live with this resolve, this intention, this commitment to obey God, no matter how painful or difficult or hard. And for Jesus, that meant going all the way to the cross, right? Philippians 2, 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? Is that the level of resolve and commitment we have to, against sin and to do God's will? To say, God, I'll die before I will sin. I will die before I will fail you. Well, for most of us, that's probably not really how we think. And it's not that we don't think that way. It's just that we think in other ways, right? It's not that maybe we would take that, but we just don't think about life in those terms, right? We, we don't think with that language. It's not our natural way of thinking, right? It's more like this. And, of course, again, these things run deep in our subconscious, right? It's not that we would maybe consciously say that, but I think a lot of it, a lot of times, this is what we really are thinking. We're thinking this. Well, I'm following God because I thought he would make my life easier. Like, I signed up for Christianity because I thought it was going to fix all my problems. Right? And so, yes, I want to be a Christian. Yes, I want to follow God. And I'm convinced that following God is going to make life easier and more comfortable. Right? And so, I'm in. I'm following God. As long as it's easy and comfortable. Right? Um, I want, to, I want to follow God because he's going to fix all my problems and make life easy. Right? Uh, I will follow God as long as he blesses me and does what I want. Right? Uh, and that kind of thinking gets very much mixed up in how we see things. And the reason is because for most of us, the most important thing is, in life is not living for God, it's living for ourselves. Right? At the root of it all is we're extremely selfish. Uh, we just find uh, kind of socially acceptable ways of being selfish, right? We all know we just can't be totally blatantly selfish. We have to kind of cloak it. So we put on, we put on you know, the dress clothes of respectability, and we become selfish in very respectable ways. But at the heart of it is that we are living for ourselves, right? We're even following Jesus because we're convinced it's going to make life easier. It's going to solve our problems. It's going to fix things. Not because it means suffering, but he says that's not the mindset, right? Jesus didn't live for himself. Why did he go to the cross? Because it gained him something? No. He went to the cross because he loved you and because he wanted to purchase you from sin and death. Right? It was the most sacrificial, unselfish thing anyone could do. He laid down his life for us because he loved us and cared for us, not because he was living for himself. Right? And that's the mindset we're supposed to have. That's what we're supposed to arm ourselves with. Uh, to take up this, this weapon of selfless sacrifice, willing to be obedient and follow God no matter the cost. Okay, so we could end right there and go home and say, okay, let's do this. But I know the reality of my own life is I can say those things, but really thinking this way is going to take more effort than that. Right? It takes more than just hearing it once on a Sunday morning. It becomes something we need to intentionally change our thinking about. So I want to talk uh, four ways in this passage that Peter tells us we can change our thinking. Things that we can do actively, daily, 
to change the way we think about this, right? So that we are arming ourselves truly with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. How do we rewire our brain so that we're thinking differently? Um, so, uh, just to kind of help us think through this, I think, I think so here's the thing. What, what, do, what do you really think, right? What are your real values? What are your real ideas? Well, to really find that out, what we need to do is listen to the conversations we have with ourselves. Does anybody talk to yourself? You all do, right? We all talk to ourselves. Some of you out loud, right? And it's annoying. Uh, most of us in our head, right? We, we, we talk to ourselves. We give ourselves message. We encourage ourselves or we rebuke ourselves all day long, all right? Uh, and so our thinking is most evident. Our real thinking, what we really think about life and about ourselves and about God, is most evident in these conversations we have with ourselves, And I think it would be very instructive for all of us if someday we could just dig out the old tapes, right, the old CDs or the old whatever, MP3s, whatever technology you're in on now, the old records, right? And you could play those and actually just subjectively listen to what you tell yourself, right? Uh, It would probably make us a little uncomfortable, right? Maybe we tell ourselves things like, well, I really want to stop sinning, but I just can't. It's too hard, right? It's just impossible, Maybe we tell ourselves, well, you know, it's not really a terrible sin. I mean, after all, everybody's doing it. It's not that big of a deal, right? Or we tell ourselves, well, it's okay. God loves me. He'll forgive me, so I don't need to change the way I live. Well, God does love you, but he loves you so much, he wants to change the way you live because he doesn't want to see you become a slave and in bondage to sin and addictions, right? So... The goal is we need to radically change the way these conversations work with ourselves. Right? We need to completely rewrite the script of what we are telling ourselves on and on all day long. Right? And so let me give you four ways we can change this conversation. The first one, uh, we need to change the conversation to this. We need to be giving ourselves the message that sin has lost its power. Okay, sin has lost its power. All right? The wrong conversation, the old conversation that we probably are having with ourselves is that I can't help it. Right? When these temptations, these urges, these cravings come up, I just can't help it. Right? Uh, it's too strong, it's too much, I can't stop. Now the reality is there is actually some truth in this. In your own flesh, you can't beat your flesh. Right? In the weakness of your humanity, you cannot overcome the weakness of your humanity. Uh, the truth is, you can't do this, right? But that's not an excuse, right? Uh, instead, of, we need to turn to someone who can help us. And that, of course, is Jesus, who has conquered sin for us. Right? He's conquered, he's defeated sin for us. Uh, so it says in verse 1, kind of continuing on the theme here, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, let's unpack this phrase a little bit. Who's ever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, this really could better be translated, the one who has suffered has ceased. Right? Uh, he's not talking here generically about anybody. Right? Because the truth is, um, people who were POWs who, uh, or in the Holocaust or experienced tr- terrible suffering don't get out of that and become you know, have attained sinless perfection, right? 
That's not true. You may have suffered a lot. You still sin, right? So he's not talking about people generally, like anybody who suffers enough will stop sinning, right? Really what it says here is it says the one who has suffered. Well, who's the one who has suffered? Well, he just told us in the first part of the verse, right? Who's the one who suffered? Jesus. Right? Jesus suffered, it says. And this one who has suffered uh, has ceased from sin. Right? So Jesus is the one who suffered. He died on the cross. Um, now this kind of creates some confusion for people because it makes it sound like, well, Jesus suffered and now he ceased from sin. So like he was sinning before, but then after he died on the cross, Jesus stopped sinning. Well, that's uh, also not a good translation. And part of the problem is the word ceased could also be translated, and I think better translated, be done away with. Right? So he who has suffered has done away with sin. Right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, Jesus did not uh, sin. Right? Uh, he did not uh, ever, ever give way to temptation. Right? But in the flesh, he did, he did face temptation. Right? He did deal with sin. His human existence was one where it says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Right? So in his life, Jesus dealt with sin. He faced it every day. Right? In the garden on the night of his arrest, he struggled with the temptation to bail out on the cross. Right? He says, Father, take this away from me. I don't want to go that way. Right? He wrestled with temptations and sins. He wrestled with the passions of the flesh. Right? Maybe not quite like we did because he didn't have a fallen nature, but he still had a flesh that could sin. And temptations for him were real. Uh, after Jesus died, he no longer struggled with those things. All right? Why? Well, because as it turns out, dead people don't have addictions. That's all there is to it, right? Dead people don't sin. Dead people don't have desires anymore. It's over. When you die, it's done, right? So, hey, Mike, we're just getting tons of, like, really bad feedback. It's driving me crazy. Sorry. Um, on the high end. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so he's done away with sin, right? Uh, so at, at one level... Jesus himself, because of his suffering on the cross, uh, no longer faces sin. But, but more than that, uh, it, it also means that uh, at the cross, Jesus finished with sin once and for all. Right? In fact, he says that earlier in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says Jesus died for sin once for all. But maybe it's expressed best in Hebrews 9.28 where it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Okay, so Jesus came once. He died on the cross to deal with our sins. He ascended to heaven and he's waiting there. And someday he's going to come back a second time. When he comes back a second time, is he going to deal with sin? No. He says not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, why? Well, because it only took Jesus once. One time. He only had to go to the cross once. And so effective was the cross that it broke and dealt permanently and finally with sin. Right? Once he suffered, he did away with sin. Not only for himself, but for all who by faith trust and follow him. Once and for all, Jesus dealt with the full 
guilt of sin and all its consequences and all its power. Right? So that in the cross, if we're following Jesus and if we're trusting in the work of the cross, sin no longer has any power over us. Its power is broken and canceled. So Paul probably spells this out a little better. Uh, In Galatians 5.24, he says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. With Christ, somehow we put to death those passions. We killed them with all their evil and wicked desires. In Romans 6, Paul writes this, For we have been united with him in his death, uh, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Right, so here's the, here's the amazing, incredible truth is that uh, sin no longer has the power over your life that it did before, before you knew Christ. Right? Its power is broken. It cannot dominate you and control you like it once did. Right? Uh, we are no longer in bondage to it. Now, does this mean we can't put ourselves back in bondage to it? Well, yes, we can, unfortunately. Right? We can put those chains back on. And we can live again under its power and control if we submit to it. Right? So Paul writes in Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Right? It's a choice you make. You choose either to let sin dominate you or you turn away from it. And in Christ you have the power to turn away, to say no. Right? So we need to have a new conversation daily about how this works. And the conversation needs to go like this. Jesus on the cross broke the power of sin. Right? I no longer have to do what my flesh tells me to. No matter how much it screams out, no matter how much it, it, it pesters us, no matter how much it plagues us, we can simply say, I don't have to do that anymore. Right? I now live under a different power and a different master. And if I give in to those things, I am making myself a slave, but it's my own foolishness. It's not because I'm under the control of sin anymore, right? If the cross had power to forgive my sins, then it also has the power to, to, to defeat its control, its temptation, right? Um, so first step, that's the first conversation we need to start having with ourselves often, daily, is look at the cross and realize what Jesus accomplished there. Not only to forgive sin, but to break its power. And by faith to trust that promise that sin no longer has to control me. I have the power now to live a very different kind of life. Second conversation we need to have. We need to have a conversation daily about what we are really living for. What are you really living for? Now, uh, we may tell ourselves what we're living for, but the conversation, the underlying conversation that kind of runs throughout the day is a better indicator of what we're really living for, right? 
And this is what he says. So, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered, or the one who suffered in the flesh, has done away with sin. Verse 2. So as, so then, we can, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in this body, this life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Right? Uh, so as to live for. What are you living for? Right? Now, Jesus has set us free, done away with sin, so that now we have the option to live for one of two things. And he says, no longer living for uh, human passions, the worldly desires, but instead living for the will of God. Right? These two choices we have before us, worldly passions, things like money, power, glory, sex, drugs, pleasure... I would add to the list comfort, convenience, and an easy life. All right? We'll get to that in a minute. Comfort, remember those words though. Comfort, convenience, and an easy life. Also, I think fall into this sense of worldly pleasures. Or we can commit and live to do God's will. Living to fulfill His purpose and plan for your life. Living for His glory to honor Him through your obedience and through your choices, and through how you live. Okay, so how does the old conversation go? Well, I think it goes something like this, maybe. Well, I am not an overly selfish person, really, but I do like being comfortable. Right? I like being comfortable. Anybody like to be comfortable? Uh, I am not greedy, <clears throat> but I, and I don't want to be super wealthy, but I do want to know how to make life easier. Right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with comfort and convenience, right? <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say don't be comfortable, right? Don't we have a right to being comfortable? I'm not selfish, I'm just being practical. <clears throat> you don't expect me to be miserable, do you? I just want to have some fun, enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Okay, do we have those kind of conversations? I think we do, right? I think we do. <clears throat> Uh, I talk to people who are somewhat, sorry, somewhat amazed that I'm a missionary, and, uh, and they say, well, I could never do that, right? I could never give up the comforts of the life I have wherever I live, right? Go, go you, right? So, yeah, right. You have no idea. Um you can be a missionary and still deal with the same temptations for comfort, right? Um, and the problem is, the heart in all of this is what? The heart is simply me. Me, right? It's like, well, I'll follow God, I'll do this, I'll do that, as long as I'm okay, right? Uh, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen carefully. Believe it or not, you are not a big enough cause to be worth living for. Let me say that again. You are not a big enough cause to be worth living for. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you don't have value or worth. You do. Jesus died for you. You have incredible worth. But as a cause, you're pretty pathetic and small. All right? You're just a small cause. Right? Uh, we live in an age where it's important to live for the right cause. And there's all kinds of causes out there that are, are important. Uh, we need to save the world from plastic and straws and plastic bags, apparently. 
Um, uh, we, need, we need to save the world from human trafficking. We need to save the world from global warming. Like, those are big causes, right? And uh, I think they're good causes, maybe. And they're, they're, they're big causes in part because the survival of the planet depends on these things, right? Like, if we don't fix global warming, the whole planet's just going to go up in flames. And that would be apparently a bad thing, right? And so that's a big cause, right? Um, so so in, in our thinking, in the modern world, people everywhere embrace this idea that the world is a big deal and it's a worthy cause. And we should make sacrifices and not use plastic straws because this will save the world, right? And, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm kind of making fun of it, but I'm not saying those are not important things they are, right? Um, uh, and, and the idea, though, is that it's a, it's a big deal because if we do these things, we can save the planet. We can preserve humanity for many millennia to come. That's a big cause. But, but here's the thing. Uh, uh, you are not that big of a deal because no matter what you do, you're going to die after about 70 years, 80, maybe 100, right? You're just not that big of a deal. And here's, the, here's kind of the bigger thing of it all, is even saving the world uh, is, is going to be failed because in the end, the Bible tells us, it doesn't matter how, how much you drink with paper straws, in the end, God is going to bring judgment and destroy the world by fire. Right? It doesn't matter how much we drive electric cars. In the end, uh, it's not global war- it's a new kind. Of, it's a different kind of global warming. It's more of a global torching that God's going to bring on planet Earth. And it's also going to be destroyed, maybe sooner than we think, right? It, it also is not really a very big cause, right? What are you living for that's really worth it? That's a cause big enough that's worth living for and worth dying for? Well, the eternal God of the universe, I think, is a big enough cause. His glory is a big enough cause because it is eternal, right? The glory of God is unfading, uh, Right? The glory and goodness and love of God that are evident in his grace toward us and his kindness toward us, that is an incredible cause worth living for. Because it's a cause that will endure through all eternity. Right? Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, why did God do all that? He says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, like meaning for eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. You get that? For all eternity, the glory and wonder of Jesus on the cross is going to be a spectacular gem. People are going to stare at with awe and wonder when they see uh, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Do you want to really live for yourself? Or do you want to live for the glory and wonder of Jesus, of, of the God who is eternal? Uh, that's the choice that's before us. And every day we need to be having this conversation. What am I really living for? Am I really content just living for myself? Or can I live for something so much greater 
Right? Am I really living for God and His glory? And if so, what price am I willing to pay to see His name exalted, to see His cause move forward, to accomplish His will and purpose, to see the goodness of God radiate in my life? Okay, that's the conversation we need to be having. What am I really living for? Uh, When you choose... Uh, when you lay out your goals, when you lay out your schedule, when you think about your budget, what are you really living for? Are you really living to do the will of God? Or are you living for worldly pleasure? Third conversation we need to have, we need to talk about to ourselves about embracing a different kind of life. Okay, embracing a completely different kind of life. Right, verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices or is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With, this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you or mock you. Right, so here we see one of the reasons why Christians oftentimes suffer. It's because their, their old drinking buddies invite them to go drinking with them. And when they say, well, I can't do that anymore. That's like, well, you're just judging me. you just goody two-shoes. You just think you're so good. Right? And they malign you. They mock you. They ridicule us. right? Um, and that was our old life. right? And in Christ, we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, First Peter 2.9 says. right? We have a new life. We've been called to a new thing. Right? And so we're no longer supposed to live according to that former life. Well, what exactly does he mean by this idea, this flood of debauchery? (laughs) Kind of an interesting term in in Greek. Uh, It's not a word that we probably use very often anymore. What is debauchery? Well, it's doing bad stuff, right? Doing bad stuff. But it's especially doing bad stuff that's considered socially unacceptable. So he gives this list of things that were super common in Roman culture, right? So this was, and it's just like it is in our day, right? Uh, the, the, the place where we do these things might have changed. Now we, we maybe don't go to the baths, maybe we go to the bar. But drinking it up with your buddies, partying, having a good time, having sex, it's just part of how life is, right? And, and this was very common in Roman society. So in Peter's day, but by the way, Peter wrote this probably in the city of Rome, which was full of just this garbage and filth. And this was just everyday life. And I remember visiting a few years back, Denise and I got to go to Pompeii. And in Pompeii, you can go to these brothels. And on the walls, they'd have painted these really lewd, horrible pictures of things that you could participate in if you paid the money, right? And that's just part of Roman life, Roman culture. But what's interesting is... These were not accepted. They, they, like, you weren't supposed to do these things. In fact, in, in the Romans had this, these lists of vices, right? And they actually had names for them. And they talked about it so that school teachers would talk about these lists of vices, bad things that you shouldn't do, right? Your parents would have these conversations about bad things you shouldn't do. And they gave them names, right? So one of them is the, the vice of avaricia. Avaricia. It's the word we get the word avarice from. And it's greed, right? Covetousness, uh, dishonesty in acquiring, in acquiring wealth or power. It was a bad thing. You were not supposed to be a, a person of avaricia, right? That's bad. Of course, they all did it, right? 
Or there was superbia. Superbia. What's superbia? Well, it's pride, arrogance, and contempt for others. Right? You weren't supposed to walk around being all proud. You're guilty of superbia. Use that with your friends at work this week. You're being superbia. <laughs> They'll be like, you're weird. Right? Uh, or there's, there's others, right? But here's one that I, I want to really pick on. Uh, I love this one. It is the vice of luxuria. Luxuria. What is the vice? Latin word from which we get the word luxury, right? Is luxury sin? Well, this is what it meant in Roman culture. Luxury was this. Luxuria was excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures, such as gluttony, drunkenness, gambling, and sexual immorality. Luxuria. Um, And the word translated here in English, debauchery, is really that word. It captures that word. Uh, Of course, it's the Latin word, uh, luxuria. Greek, it's a different word. But that's what it's capturing. This idea of a vice that's not socially acceptable, but everybody does it anyway. And it's this idea of luxuria, of living for pleasure. Having the wealth and prosperity that give you, first of all, the leisure and free time to indulge in this stuff as well as the resources to get and obtain whatever pleasure to make life comfortable and good and pleasurable, right? Um, what I think Peter's saying here is like we, we've, we've adopted this lifestyle of luxury. We think that... Um, Living for pleasure is kind of like the ultimate goal and purpose of life. Even though, even society says we shouldn't be doing these things, there's this kind of inherent thinking that this is the ultimate of life, is being, uh, is, is enjoying the pleasures of life. Right? And so we have this conversation with ourselves. Like, in fact, actually, I know I'm not even sure we actually have the conversation. I think it's been so ingrained in our thinking that this is kind of how life is supposed to be. We don't even talk about it to ourselves anymore. It's just assumed and expected that comfort and pleasure is basic to my very survival. Luxury, you could say, is essential to my very survival. And that this is what I should pursue in life if it's possible, right? right. Why, why do we, we feel that poverty is so wrong? Is poverty really wrong? I think it's just ingrained in us. Yes, it's wrong because life should be about luxury, not poverty, right? It's just, we, it's just what we assume is how life should be. Everyone deserves this life of luxury if they can find it. Uh, could there possibly anything wrong with just the simple pleasures of life, of being comfortable, of having life easy, of, of comfort and, and convenience? Right? Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with just being comfortable. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. There's nothing inherently wrong with life being easier. But here's the thing. That's not what we arm ourselves with. He says, arm yourself with this thinking. Suffering. Suffering is not being comfortable. Right? Suffering is not 
easy. Right? And yet, how much do we just assume that life has to be comfortable and easy and full of pleasure or we're missing something? In fact, maybe the conversation we have when life doesn't go that way is, God, why don't you love me? Have you ever say that? Right? Life's hard, and I'm not comfortable, and it's not easy, and I'm suffering. God, you must not love me. Because we're so convinced this is a, it's just an inherent right of what it means to be a human being. And, and, and Peter says we shouldn't be running, joining. He actually says running along with them to jump into this pool of luxury, of sensual pleasure, of excessive eating and feasting and gluttony, comfort, wealth, right? The excessiveness of life right? that even the Romans looked down on. But we've embraced as really the definition of success. This is the definition of what it really means to have arrived and achieved a good life. Um, I think we need to have a new conversation on this one. And I think the conversation should go like this. I want to glorify God and honor Him so much that I am willing to suffer and give up anything, even comfort, even an easy life, uh, in order to bring Him glory, in order to honor and obey Him. Right? I think we need to be asking ourselves, are we really willing to suffer anything, any inconvenience, any hardship, any struggle? And, and in fact, not only to be willing but to embrace a life that's different, right? To embrace a life that's just inherently harder, where we're sacrificing more, where we're living at a different level and a different standard, right? Now, I'm not saying you have to live in total poverty, but would it kill you if you did, (laughs) right? Are we embracing a whole different kind of life? I think that's a conversation we need to change our thinking about. Right? Finally, last conversation we need to have ourselves is that it is worth it to wait. It is worth it to wait. Right? Verse 5, he says this, But they, that is these sinners, these pagan worldly people, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. A little bit of a confusing passage here, but the short is simply this. Uh, everybody one day will give an account to God, who's the great judge. Right? And he says that's why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. So even those from long past, and here he's probably going back even into the Old Testament, and the idea of the gospel of, of relationship with God, of knowing God, of being chosen, belonging to Him, so that even those who died, um, uh, though judged in the flesh, that is judged by human standards according to people, right? And, and he thinks probably like of the list of people, uh, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, right? Who were killed by sword and drawn in two and faced the lions. Right? It faced a lot of suffering. Uh, he says it's better to be those people than to be those who are judged and found guilty on the day of judgment. Right? Um, here's the question. Is it better to live for the moment now or live for eternity? 
right? Uh, yes, there are all kinds of pleasures and enjoyments that we can enjoy now. Uh, is it good to live for those things and face judgment later? Or suffer now and receive eternal rewards later? Right? Uh, now, this seems like an obvious no-brainer, right? But this is how it works. You know, they did this experiment. The, you guys know about the marshmallow experiment they did with children. They took a bunch of little four-year-olds, put them in a room, and they studied them to see how well they could wait to get the reward. And they told the little four-year-old, okay, here's a marshmallow. I'm going to set right here on this table. And here's the deal. You can eat the marshmallow now. But if you wait, when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows, right? And so the tester would leave the room and the poor little child would be in the room by themselves with the marshmallow. Right? Do I eat the marshmallow now? Or do I wait and get two marshmallows? Uh, Well, most kids, they found, could not wait. They could not wait. Right? They ate the marshmallow. Now. Right? Uh, Now, what's interesting is they found that those kids, uh, it became a mark for how successful they were uh, when they got into high school and college. And kids who could wait for the second marshmallow, for the two mar- marshmallow package deal, actually scored much higher on their, the, like their SAT college entrance exams than the kids who couldn't. Right? Um, but this is kind of a marshmallow test at a whole other level. Because Jesus said, look, you can have your pleasure now, or when I come back, you can have two. <laughs> well, he's not coming back for a really long time. So we're talking about a lifetime of waiting. A lifetime, right? Not just a few minutes or hours. But the principle is the same. Like it's obvious it's better to wait. Especially when we consider what's at stake here. It's not just a matter of getting two marshmallows instead of one. It's a a matter of getting judgment versus getting reward. He says they will give an account for their life, right? Uh, the word account really means, it's the word logos, right? They will give a wall, they will give a word, they will give a spoken narrative of their life, right? And this is the moment we all dread, right? We all dread standing before God, and all of a sudden this screen lights up, and it's our life, and there's the story of our life, and every sin gets played out before a righteous and holy God, Right? And, and God is the judge. And what that means is he, he determines our innocence or our guilt. And, and it, it, I, I, hope you, I hope you think about this. Like this is part of how we arm ourselves, that one day we will all stand before God and we will give an account for our life. And the judgment is eternal. Right? If God says guilty... Depart from me, I never knew you. Right? It is a bad day. Or the, narr- the narration goes like this. He was bad, he was a sinner, Tim was an idiot, he did these scenes. And then he met Jesus. And he put his faith in, in the cross and Jesus wiped away all those sins. And he is innocent, perfect, guiltless, blameless, before God. Right? And he says, come enter my joy. Right? Come enter my joy. Right? So here's, here's the old conversation. 
This pleasure, this sin that I hunger for right now, is the only way I will be truly happy. If I don't do this, if I don't indulge in this sin, I'm missing out on a pleasure that's going to deprive me of happiness. I've got to have this, or my life will be empty, and I will not know true happiness and joy. I have to have it now. Or the new conversation. I do want real joy. I want real happiness. I want the blessing of reward. But it does not exist in this life. It's a lie. Right? It is a lie. There is no happiness. There is only bondage. Remember? There is only becoming a slave to a heartless ruler who will dominate my life and control me. The reward I wait for is, is in eternity. So yes, I can wait. <laughs> It's worth it to wait. Right? It is worth it to wait. Uh, so much better to have the attitude and mindset of Jesus. Let's close with uh, just this great reminder, same kind of summing it up uh, from the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which sticks so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.